0: Reenacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself?
2: I want to be,
0: Interesting email from a woman who said, Carol, I want to ask you what I should do. I'm emailing you today with questions of how I move forward. My husband is 15 years older than I, and we have been married for nine years. He has a history, and I'm trying to determine if we call this a sexual addiction. Over the years, from the time that we met, he has asked me to do numerous sexual things for him. And then she gives me some details, which I'm not going to go into. And then she says, one
1: very harsh thing I hold
0: inside is that several years ago in his previous marriage, he inappropriately touched his stepdaughter. He continues to say how she has forgiven him and no charges were ever pressed. I don't know how. No, I'm sorry. I don't know the detail, but just those words make me cringe. His actual daughter won't speak to him anymore. Now that's not the stepdaughter that he that he touched. That's his daughter. I've always given in to his requests as I'm incredibly passive. But now I'm building up with anger and resentment. I started to withdraw from him, and just recently I found that he had been watching porn when he told me that he would not, and it just really hurts me. It wasn't just normal porn, Carol. Needless to say, it was porn regarding children. Now, I have to tell you, Carol, I am his fourth marriage. And I think there are so many warning signs that I just really don't know how to move forward. He's really a nice guy, and he tries to do good things for me, but I feel that his way of handling his emotions are just downright wrong. I've tried to express to him that even though it's been several months since I've confronted him, I still have so much anger inside me, and I can't seem to get to the next stage of healing. My body and my mind are taking a toll on me and I'm just not feeling well. What do you think the next step should be? Um, we'll call her Jill. Jill, this is a lot for anybody to deal with. Because you start out talking about the fact that you've been married for a considerable amount of time and that she has asked you to do things that you prefer not to do sexually. And what I know to be true is that sometimes couples um, agree to try things that are not necessarily comfortable, and one of two things happens. It either gets comfortable, and it ends up working out as extracurricular uh, activity, if you will, sexually, or it becomes very apparent, party, party, not want to participate any longer and I guess I would say I don't know that it's a bad thing that he's asked you to do things but if you don't want to do them you stay true to yourself I mean sexuality has to be about being comfortable and as I just indicated initially you might not be comfortable but if you're still not comfortable that's a no-brainer absolutely not then the second thing you bring up is that he's touched his stepdaughter inappropriately. He's molested her. Now, we don't know the the when, where, how, how far it got. I'm assuming there wasn't sexual intercourse. I'm assuming that it was inappropriate touching. But having been a sexual abuse expert, I want to say that although it may seem to the public that there is a graduated... Um, progression, if you will, of touching versus molesting versus digital manipulation versus intercourse, blah, 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 blah. There really isn't. What matters is that he molested her and it sounds like you're intimating that he still has a propensity to be with children or at least to be interested in child porn. And that is not okay. So, Jill, I'm asking you to set some boundaries. And it's so interesting because tonight we're going to be talking about boundaries. I might even ask Dr. Crystal Holmbeck, who's a certified sex addiction therapist and um, a sex therapist and clinical partner specialist, what boundaries she might encourage you to look at. You know, what we know is as therapists, you know, we do not tell you what you need to do. But there is no doubt that if somebody looks at child porn, it desensitizes them to acting out. So you've already said he's acted out. And if he continues to look at that porn, I wouldn't trust that. And then in addition to that, you said you're afraid a policeman will show up at your door. Well, the truth of the matter is that could happen. It's happened to a lot of my clients. And, um, you know, some of my clients were absolutely almost, um, almost professionals in this they distributed a lot of porn, they sold, they gathered, um, but some of my clients weren't. They would occasionally look at that. You know, sex addiction is about escalating behaviors, and for some men, they really didn't have a propensity to children, but there was a, an obsession that occurred that became compulsive. And that's what you may be dealing with. I mean, no offense, but your husband, Jill, sounds like his illness has really progressed, his disorder. That compulsive problematic sexual behavior appears to me to have been very much escalated. Now, you made mention of the many marriages. And that has nothing to do with sex addiction, unless the many marriages were because women found out and got disgusted and left. So, here's what I would advice first. I would ask you to get yourself to a certified sexual addictions therapist who has some partner sensitivity so that that person can explain what you are experiencing and what may happen as his condition continues to escalate. And I would ask you to get with somebody who's good with boundaries. Because the truth of the matter is, you do need boundaries to keep yourself safe and also um, to maintain your sense of integrity. You know, you deserve to establish guidelines for him that make you feel safe if you're going to continue to live with him. And... If it were me, not only would I get get myself to a a certified sex addiction therapist who's partner sensitive, but I would also sit down and do some very early couples recovery work so that you can have a specialist help you with boundaries. It sounds like you don't know what to do. And I hope you're listening tonight because I am telling you that Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck is a specialist in this area and she has guidelines that will help you to determine what you need to do next. And so I am so happy to welcome Dr. Crystal to Sex Help with Carol the Coach and thank you so much for doing such an important show on boundaries.
1: Hey, Carol, it's so nice to talk with you. This is such an important topic. Well, it
0: is, and it's very, very intimidating to women because they don't want to feel like they have the the entire control. They don't want to feel like they have to micromanage. But so many of the boundaries that we advocate for really have to do with keeping themselves safe. Wouldn't you
1: agree? Well, absolutely. And I think it starts, though, with the person who's struggling with addiction. So if we're talking specifically about men struggling with addiction, you know, I really try to set them up for really strong boundaries for their own protection for recovery. And I'm a firm believer that if the person who's struggling with the addiction has strong boundaries that protects themselves from acting out, they're not going to hurt their partner very much, right? They have to lean into empathy and some other things and really be there for the partner while they're healing, But if they'll have strong boundaries, it really makes it easier for the partner than to heal from the wounds they've created. Well, I absolutely agree. And
0: and I find that that is part of good emotional maturity. But the truth of the matter is so many of the addicts that first come into my office, they're not sure what boundaries they need or want. So how do you help them determine that?
1: Well, you're exactly right. People that I see, the clients that I see are very resistant to accountability when they're new to recovery. So doing some good education on addiction in general, regardless of what addiction you're dealing with, we know from research that all addictions will stunt you emotionally that every addict struggle with accountability and openness and boundaries. I mean, that's the root of addiction is doing what I want when I feel like it, the compulsivity part of it. So a boundary, the first thing I try to educate my clients with is the purpose of boundaries is to protect you, not to restrict you. And if they understand that Um, You know, boundaries are lines or limits that we draw, and it can be around so many things, whether you're having a boundary to protect yourself or whether you're having a boundary that says, here's a consequence. If you cross this boundary to somebody else, then there's going to be a consequence for it. But we focus a lot of times in recovery and in literature on the partner establishing boundaries, but really we don't talk enough about the addict is really establishing boundaries right from the beginning of recovery. And I think it's so important to understand that boundaries are around your time, your thoughts, your emotions, your career, family, friends, activities, so many things. And so working with a therapist who understands addiction um, is really important to First of all, educate you on boundaries and then lean you in to start establishing them. Well, absolutely. And so would you give
0: our listening audience a little bit of information about the 15 essential boundaries and why you find they're imperative
1: to good recovery and good treatment? Well, it's interesting. Every time I talk with one of my clients who has a slip, or an issue, um, the first thing I always ask them is, are you reading your recovery plan daily? And almost every single time they're not, and that leads to a slip. So the very first boundary that I establish with my clients, and and most likely every therapist uh, who's trained in sex addiction recovery, the first thing we're going to do is develop a written recovery plan for you to read every day, and you're going to share it with your wife, and she's going to give her input into it. And it's a living document. So you are literally creating a list of boundaries of protection for yourself. I like to call it intentional living. That's what your recovery plan is. But it's a written plan, and it's going to include boundaries, like I said, for your mental health, your physical well-being, um, your time management, Um boundaries around your work, even boundaries around recovery. Oftentimes when I have a, an addict who is really struggling, sometimes I take a look at how much recovery work he's doing, and there can be an extreme with recovery work. So we set some boundaries around the amount of time, the amount of meetings, the recovery work that they're doing as well. So really developing that written plan right from the beginning with your therapist that's going to contain boundaries.
0: And, you know, I get the boundaries are so very important, and I love that you're really referencing what will keep them safe and protect them from slipping or relapsing. What would you say is the opposite? Well, not the opposite. What's the difference between a relapse and a slip?
1: Well, relapse is actually breaking recovery. So it's breaking sobriety. When we establish a written recovery plan, you're going to clearly identify what relapse would be. And I always say there's no relapse in recovery. If you're working your recovery plan, you don't relapse. Because a good, strong recovery plan helps you to live intentional, and it has a plan when you're vulnerable, So if you're living intentionally and you have a plan for when you're vulnerable that you follow and you've got a good support system, you never end up breaking sobriety. So a slip would be something that you do that is leaning you towards breaking sobriety. For example, it could be lying. It could be secrets of any kind. It could be um, going places or not managing your intrusive thoughts. It could also be... Um, if you, maybe in your, maybe breaking sobriety for you would be watching porn. A slip would be, I'm getting on here and I'm surfing and I'm looking at pictures of celebrities. So I'm not watching porn, but I'm really crossing over, starting to fantasize, looking up pictures of women. If we start to go there, um, that would be considered a slip. Well, and, you know, most men that I work with, it, as they
0: begin that process, it's an automatic that they are going to eventually look at those, that kind of stuff and then decide, oh, well, I've already messed up, so I'm just going to keep that up for another hour, another day, or another week. So it really is a recipe for disaster. Now, You you and I both know that we really want our sex addicts to maintain at least 90 days of complete abstinence after they've written that recovery plan and read it daily. So talk about what that 90 days of abstinence would
2: look like.
1: Yes, and that's number two on the list, actually. That's included in your recovery plan when it is set up from the beginning. You're going to start 90 days of complete abstinence from all sensual and sexual activity with yourself, with your wife, and with anyone else. So that means that Your wife is also um, not going to be engaging with you sensually or sexually for those 90 days. It is a sacrifice for her, although some partners don't want anything to do with being sensual with their husbands. But oftentimes I have partners that do want to engage at times. So we set that up not only for the sexual activity, but I also include um, in the abstinence all alcohol and non-prescription drug use as well, um, We want to make sure during those 90 days that it's so new to the person in sex addiction recovery. We want them to get clear-minded. We want those neurotransmitters in the brain to be reset. We want them to build their confidence that they can make good choices. At the same time, they're getting support and they have a written recovery plan of what to follow when something does happen. And if they do break the 90 days of abstinence, then we just restart it. We do want to get a full day, uh, a full 90 days of complete abstinence at the beginning of recovery. And
0: again, it's not like that is um, a timeline that we just designated for no reason, but that really is the minimum amount of time to reset that brain and train the brain not to look at visuals and not to want sexually addictive behavior, even if it's what we call slippery slope. And slippery slope would be, like you said, looking at bathing suits or um, looking at cheerleaders, kinds of things that get that fantasy started. So what would you say is the um, third rule of recovery?
1: It's establishing guidelines for interactions with females. And so the reason I say interaction with females is because I've never had someone in sex addiction recovery that didn't have some type of issue with objectifying women simply because of what you're spending your time doing, the way you're treating women, um, the way you're engaging with it, uh, looking at the porn, the way you're flirting with women, crossing boundaries. So we set up a really good plan for boundaries for that. That would include – um, no complimenting women. So I always tell people, let's say you have to work with a woman and maybe you have to give her an accolade for a, a job well done. You just make sure that would be professional. You know, the time that you put onto this project really was excellent work, but you would never say, you're awesome, you look nice, you smell good. Um, you know, you wouldn't compliment her person. You wouldn't obviously touch a woman. You wouldn't be hugging and kissing her. You wouldn't be standing around joking or engaging in emotional conversation. And the way I um, recommend that is if let's say the woman comes up to you and starts to talk about her weekend or get in, you know, ask about your children, you can simply remove yourself. You can always be kind, but you can say, I've got to go take a phone call. You can excuse yourself to go to the restroom, but you really have to start. Being able to build boundaries around your interaction with females so that you can get comfortable seeing them as a whole person, where a lot of times you have unhealthy habits, whether that's you feel um, shy or awkward in the presence of women or whether you're just so used to being overly friendly that leads to flirtation and inappropriateness.
0: Well, and that is so important because oftentimes when we're working with addicts, we find out that they're really in a certain sense of denial. They're like, well, I'm just talking to somebody. Well, I just Mm -hmm. told her she looked nice. But you and I know, Crystal, that that's grooming or flirting, and it's not healthy behavior for abstinence recovery and, of course, sobriety.
1: You're absolutely right. It helps them to stay present, right? So addiction takes Mm -hmm. us off into zoning out into fantasy, and recovery is intentional living of being present. What am I saying? What am I doing? Paying attention to what you say as well as your behaviors. You're exactly right, Carol. And so these
0: are important boundaries because, again, they protect the person, and they also calm down that reward center. And so you mentioned it earlier, but you said really this is not just about monitoring and abstaining from sex addiction. It's also about limiting alcohol and recreational drug use. So tell us a little bit about that and why that's got to be part of the solution.
1: Yes, in your recovery plan, you have to have a drink limit and recreational drug use. So, for example, a lot of times we see that once people cross over to getting a strong buzz, they'll call it, or perhaps drinking too much alcohol, their inhibitions are just lowered. And so they're more apt to acting out sexually. So, what I always recommend is whether it's New Year's Eve or whether it's a backyard barbecue. You should know your limit, whether that's two drinks, three drinks. I do think it's something you should discuss with your wife because sometimes um, you're you're not aware of your own limitations at times or when you start to cross over to behave differently. And so I think everybody, just to be healthy, needs to have some responsible boundaries around alcohol and recreational drug use. And I have clients, several clients, that will use illegal drugs at parties. Um, And these are people that are very high functioning. Um, This isn't people that you would think of using drugs on the street. Um, These are people that hold very high functioning positions. Um, But it can be very common at parties, at holidays, at get together. So just setting that boundary for yourself that here's my limit regardless of where I'm at always protects you from crossing into boundaries related to sex addiction.
0: Well, I'm sure there's some people that are listening to the show and they're thinking, well, can somebody with a sex addiction moderate their drug or alcohol use? And I, I think you're saying it's possible and you'll be able to tell
1: by your ability to, to modify that. Yeah, it's a decision. Absolutely. So if you're going to the, you know, I'm a big believer in planning. So if you have this established that I'm going to have a three drink limit, there are some things you can plan for. Maybe you drink a non-alcoholic drink in between those three drinks. So you can spread them out over the evening. Perhaps you let your uh, wife know or Um, Well, your wife would be aware of your boundary, but maybe remind your wife before you go that, you know, I'm going to have three drinks this evening. If you have a close friend that um, you trust, you can let them know, you know, I'm starting a three-drink limit, Um, you know. So even letting people know of that boundary, people that care about you will respect that. They'll be aware of it, and it always helps us to tell somebody when we're trying to make change. It gives more accountability for that but they absolutely can, and they actually feel better. I have a lot of clients that tell me how much better they feel just being more mindful about their use of alcohol.
0: Yeah, there are a lot of benefits to, as you're working in a recovery program, just being 100% of sound mind and being able to make good decisions. Now, filtering software on all electronics, let's talk about that you believe there needs to be a boundary where there are filtering softwares to keep you safe. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yes. So most people are going to use their phone, their laptop, their iPad. They're going to use these electronics to do a lot of their acting out behavior, whether that is uh, flirting, texting inappropriately, downloading apps to use, inappropriately, being on social media, porn use, sexting. Those are usually done on your electronic devices, Um, being on dating apps, different things such as that. So when you add these filtering softwares, again, we're doing two things, Carol, that you talked about earlier. We are trying to provide boundaries that protect the sex addict. It gives them that little bit of protection to say oh wait a minute I know I have a filter on here oh I can't go there I can't open that app or download it um, without it being known it gives them that second to just reconsider okay I know I have a boundary on here and then also it helps your partner to feel safe because she will get an alert if you open an app or download a new app she'll get an alert if you're typing in certain things that could be inappropriate um, also to go along with that would be the next boundary, which is the no-delete rule. So we have it we establish a no-delete rule for a boundary around you're not to delete any text messages, phone messages, emails, um, apps, and there are ways to see whether things have been deleted or not. And there's actually software that can recover deleted information as well now. And so... Again, doing both things, protecting the person with the addiction and then also giving the wife safety where she feels like there's some boundaries in place or she would be alerted if something was happening.
0: Well, and I know that a partner on some level may not believe that he's really following a no-delete rule, but it's pretty obvious. If if a partner, after she suspected that there's a problem, is checking the phone, you can tell when somebody has no history and when somebody has left everything open and available to the partner. So I like the fact that you have that no-delete rule. And what I know is that that is really an opportunity to prove to the partner and, of course, to yourself, that so you have nothing to hide. So let me ask, that next boundary is cash accountability. And that sounds extreme, Dr. Crystal. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, we know that if we're doing something we don't want a paper trail for, the easiest way to do it is to use cash. And of course a lot of acting out is done with cash money. And so What I recommend is there is accountability for all cash. If you're going to take money out, you would just be able to produce receipts. You know, the first stage of building trust back is what we call the verification stage. And it's basically where we don't believe anything you've said or or done. And so you're going to prove that you're telling the truth. And that is important in the beginning because there's been so many lies told There's usually been money spent out of marital funds, Um, so I, I call that actually stealing, right? You're taking money from the marital funds and using it to do something that harms the marriage. And so we just want to be accountable for all cash. Now, some people will think that's extreme, but if you think about it this way, I know I've traveled quite a bit, and I have found that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that I can't use my debit card for except when we are in a fine hotel and we have to tip the bellman. That has been the only time I've ever found that I actually needed cash. Even if you're in a cab in New York City, you can run your debit card right in the back of the machine. All tips can be done that way. Um, And so what I always recommend is just use a debit card. It takes the money right out of the bank account. There's a paper trace for it. And again, Carol, the same thing. If a person in addiction doesn't have cash in their pocket, it's to protect them. They're much less tempted to do something, right? You have to go out of your way to go to the bank and take out money or, you know, and then your wife's going to say, well, I saw you took out money today. What was that for? And, again, it's not about the wife micromanaging you. It's not about restriction. It's about accountability and freedom. Boundaries are about protecting you. So you can live in freedom and full accountability, and so I do recommend um, accountability for all cash. And you know,
0: I know a lot of men that have
1: actually said,
0: "I love that my wife has taken over our finances because she gives me an allowance. It just helps me to know can't get past her." You know, sometimes sex addicts need they need support systems to help them make better decisions for the first eh, 90, 90 days, maybe 180 days, maybe even a year. And that's, that's a team approach. And what I hear you saying, Crystal, is I'm talking about addicts and how they can create accountability for themselves. And that's why cash accountability is so important. You're exactly right. So let me ask you, you know, when you look at more of your um, essential
1: boundaries,
0: you talk about maintaining a travel plan. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yes, you want to develop and maintain a travel plan, and that would be whether you're going to be away from home on business or whether your wife is away from home. You want to be able to develop a travel plan and then also make sure that you ask your wife, here's what my plan is. Do you need anything else to feel safe? That also may change depending on where you're going. There may be more triggers for your wife when you travel at certain times or go certain places. A lot of people will act out when they're traveling uh, for work or even personal because they're away from home, they feel like there's, a more opportunity, that they're not going to get caught. They'll feel like they have less accountability. And so developing and maintaining a travel plan, as well as developing and maintaining a plan to process your negative feelings. This is a really important one. A lot of times what sex addiction is doing for you is it's helping you to escape the pain of reality. So you're looking for a feel-good. You're looking for fantasy. So part of your boundaries has to be that you recognize that. That could be maybe when you feel overwhelmed or you feel stressed, maybe when you feel resentment or agitation towards your wife or after an argument, or maybe just even feeling lonely. But it's a really important boundary that you establish and maintain, how do I process those negative feelings when they come up so that I'm not zoning out, but that I'm staying present and have a plan for that. You know, one of the things
0: I know, Dr. Crystal, is that you are making all these things sound like just the best choice in protecting recovery. Now, I want to remind my listening audience that I am talking with Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck, and she is not only a certified sexual addiction therapist and a partner trauma clinician, but she also is an asex and that's a sex therapist that's been certified, as well as an EMDR therapist. Can I ask you, Crystal, how in the world did you get involved in all of this
1: when really you could have had your hands full with sex therapy? Well, actually, when I was an intern still getting my master's degree and starting to do some counseling in school, I noticed that... I just started getting a lot of couples. And then people started referring a lot of couples to me. First, I went to get certified as a sex therapist because I realized I needed more resources to help the couples I was seeing. And then I started to realize sex therapy wasn't really addressing the problematic sexual behaviors. And I had a friend, my college bestie, that was actually going to go be a CSAT. And so her and I actually did... Uh, the training together and it really has helped me then to look at the problematic sexual behaviors. And then of course I went on to treat the trauma related with sexual abuse and sex addiction. So I'm able to now take my clients. I, I believe that what I get the privilege to do is to take people from that unhealthy sexuality to healthy sexuality so my training and my education and resources have really allowed me to do that, to treat all aspects of sexuality with an individual and a couple.
0: Well, and if people wanted to get a hold of you for either therapy or your incredible intensives that
1: you provide, how could they do that? You can just go to my website. It's just my name, crystalhollenbeck.com. And that's C R Y S T A L H O L L E N B E C K dot com. And you can call me at 407 408 6521. But my website will have all the details for you about the intensives and the services that I offer. My offices are in Orlando and Tampa, Florida.
0: And so what made you decide to create intensives? I mean, most people just do therapy, and you decided to uh, take it to the next level.
1: Well, I saw a lot of clients that really wanted to do therapy more often. In other words, they wanted to, can I come in every day? Can I come in for hours? I was doing a lot of crisis management. And so I realized that I really needed to do some more intensive therapy. And I originally went and got trained under Dr. Milton Magnus. And he trained me on how to do the three-day sex addiction intensives for couples. And it was interesting, while we were there, he said, you know, you specialize in treating trauma. You can go ahead and do a three-day trauma intensive. And I said, what? And he said, sure, you can do that. And so he actually scheduled a trauma intensive for me to do uh, with a partner, and I had to go create it. So he kind of put me on the spot, but really what he taught me to do, Carol, was take what I already was doing with clients and just put it into an intensive forum. And I have found that they are so successful because you don't often get to take three days out of your life and just focus on your own healing. And so they've been very, very helpful to people and I really enjoy doing them.
0: Well, and Milt Magnus is amazing because he has really figured out the formula to helping couples learn the truth and work through their issues and set boundaries and create a new life for themselves. Now, With your intensives,
1: you work with the partner and his or her spouse, correct? Yes, it's for the couple, and we do a full disclosure followed by a lie detector exam. We do an impact statement and an emotional restitution letter all in those three days. We also make sure that you're set up for a clear written recovery plan so that when you leave the intensive, Either you're going to be my clients and you'll continue with me or you'll go back home to whatever state uh, that you're from and you'll continue with a CSAT therapist. Well, I love
0: that because that's really a way to expedite sometimes a six-week to six-month process. So now that we talked about the intensive, I'm going to continue with these 15 Essential Boundaries, and you really believe that the addict has to be able to maintain a plan to process their negative feelings. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yes. They have to be able to recognize those negative feelings, and that's part of developing the written recovery plan. When are you vulnerable to acting out? Is it when you're lonely or stressed? Maybe you've had an argument with your wife, whatever it may be, but we're going to identify those. And then your therapist is going to give you the skills to be able to process those emotions so you don't hold on to them or you don't take that step. And the next boundary actually goes right along with helping you to process negative feelings, and it's developing and maintaining a support system and healthy relationships with other men. This could include your 12-step meetings. Great, your 12-step meetings should be part of your recovery plan, but it is not your recovery plan. Obviously, not all people can go to therapy, um, but I strongly recommend that you do see a therapist and have a 12-step recovery plan. You're going to have support from a sponsor, from other people within your group, and those are going to be people that are very important in your life that you can call when you're feeling lonely or overwhelmed you can call them they've walked the same road that you've walked they're not going to judge you they're going to help hold you accountable and so that's an important part of the established boundaries are having those relationships in your life and why do you think
0: addicts have so much so much trouble talking about feelings
1: Well, there's a lot of reasons for that. Most of it develops early on in life, I have found. You know, how does your family communicate to you about feelings? Are you allowed to have a voice? How does your family handle negative feelings? You learn whether it's appropriate to cry or be sad. Does anybody pay attention when you have those feelings? Have you gotten in trouble Uh, When you try to voice your feelings and then also on top of that your own personality plays a part in that some people just naturally tend to be quiet and then other people are more outgoing around their feelings so there's several things Uh, trauma during childhood and development can impact whether you share things about yourself or not whether you were bullied. Uh, during your developmental years can impact whether you are transparent or share your feelings. And then also, if if you've not been able to voice your feelings, sometimes I have people tell me, I don't even know what I'm feeling. So they have to really be able to learn how to feel the feelings. Maybe they only resort to anger or they um, just ignore all feelings by acting out or staying busy. So it's an important part of the recovery. You have to have boundaries around giving yourself permission to identify and feel what you're feeling and then process them in a healthy way. And a therapist can help you do that.
0: And, you know, I love that
1: because one of the things that
0: I know is that negative feelings typically spiral into shame and guilt. And guilt, of course, means you did something wrong. Shame means that you're a bad person. And we don't want that to happen. So it is important to be able to process negative feelings and it's also important to have support systems that encourage you to do that. So so
1: tell us a little bit about that. Right, you do need a support system. Um, one of the other boundaries that you need to practice is honesty. And that goes along with your feelings. You have to be honest about how are you feeling? Are you feeling sad? Are you feeling angry, frustrated? It's okay to give yourself permission to be honest about what you're feeling and then being able to reach out to somebody so that you're not processing it alone. Sometimes journaling your feelings and then talking about it afterwards can be helpful, but it's really important that you have people in your life that you can trust. Some people coming into recovery don't have anyone. They haven't gotten close to anyone. Um, we know that sex addiction is an intimacy disorder, and that also impacts their ability at times to really have real, open relationships with other people.
2: You and know, in the next there
0: boundary so thing No, there's so many reasons for an addict to not feel that they can trust. Maybe they had neglect in their own life. Maybe they couldn't trust anybody to communicate and be open and honest. And so it's hard to believe that it's okay to share feelings. And then it's even harder to believe that there are people out there that would support you. And so you and I both help
1: addicts to find people that they can trust, right? That's right. You think about family members, you begin there um, in the groups with a sponsor. So it does take some time to really build trust. A lot of times addicts themselves don't trust other men or other people in their life from their experiences. So it does take a little bit of time, but it should be a part of your recovery plan that you start focusing on immediately.
0: Okay, so now you know that the absolute essential part of recovery is honesty and transparency and authenticity. So explain to to our listening audience why honesty is so important.
1: Well, the foundation of marriage is honesty, fidelity, and accountability, right? And so you not only have to be honest with your partner so that she can heal, But you have to be honest with yourself. You have to break through denial. You have to understand that you're not a horrible person, but you've done some horrible things. So if you can't start to be honest, then you're not going to be able to do a healthy recovery. Now, practicing honesty is another thing. That just takes time. You know, the addict mind justifies and lies. And so I always tell people, you know, they have to be educated that learning to be honest and practice it, it does take some time. You have to be intentional about it. But again, this is part of your boundaries you want to establish in your written plan right from the beginning so that you start being mindful of it. And then, of course, transparency goes along with it. Transparency is just really being open about yourself, sharing things Mm -hmm. you're learning in recovery, uh, sharing with other people in recovery, sharing with your wife, being able to also lean into empathy with her is all part of that journey.
0: Well, and, you know, I'm thinking about the 15 um, essentials that you're talking about here, and one of the things you say is follow the threat safety rule. Tell our listening audience
1: about that. So this is a really good one for, especially for objectifying It helps you there and also for preventing slips that could lead to relapse. So I always try to tell people, think about you. You are very valuable. You want to protect yourself. So if you see a threat, you want to start training your brain that if I see a threat, I'm going to look for safety for myself. So, for example, um, I just dealt with this this week with a client. If you are walking down the street and you see someone in front of you who's maybe dressed in short shorts or a skimpy top or they catch your eye, that's a threat, right? That's a threat to your mind staying pure, to objectifying, to disrespecting your wife. So if you see something catches your eye, not only look the other way, but look where would safety be? Would you turn around and maybe walk the other way? Would you look to maybe go down another street? But you wouldn't want to keep yourself in the line of the threat. You wouldn't want to keep walking toward the threat or walking behind the threat um, because it takes time to really see people as whole people, right, when you're struggling with objectification. So that would be one way. But right. anytime time you notice something's very difficult for you, it's a threat to you being able to keep a pure mind or to behave Well, or you notice your body is getting tense or you're getting anxious, what do you need to do if you're sitting in a restaurant and you're noticing people walking by, just turn your seat, turn your seat to where you're looking at the wall or you're looking at the people that you're seated with. So just kind of developing that habit. If I see a threat, I'm going to look for safety. And, again, I love how you
0: pose that because it's not deprivation. It's not, oh, I'm looking at the wall. It's how am I protecting my brain and making it easy to stay in recovery. Now, the last thing you talk about, and we have about one minute to talk about this, is seek complete healing. Tell us about that.
1: Yes, and I think, Carol, that this is the most important one to establish. Make a commitment to get complete healing. That means you're going to commit to individual and couples therapy for at least two years because the addict himself needs healing a lot of times from trauma and abuse recovery. He needs to develop character. He needs to develop healthy sexuality, relational intimacy, And most importantly, someone who's struggling with sex addiction really needs to know themselves. They need to understand themselves. This also is important to work with your therapist about what your faith beliefs are. Explore what you believe about the human being. What do you believe about God? Of course, the 12 steps is going to support this as well. And how are you going to incorporate what your beliefs are? But this is probably the most important boundary to establish is the commitment to loving yourself. I'm going to seek complete healing in therapy with the 12 steps in changing my habits and walking in integrity. I just want to encourage everybody to remember that a recovery plan is really intentional living. Absolutely.
0: Dr. Crystal Hollenbeck, thank you so much for sharing the boundaries. And please let us know one more time, how can people contact you? Where's your website and
1: what do we need to do next? Thanks, Carol. My website is com. It's just my name, C-R-Y-S-T-A-L-H-O-L-L-E-N-B-E-C-K. And my number is 407 408 Six five two one, and I have offices in Orlando and Tampa, Florida. All right. Well, we appreciate this because boundaries are so tough,
0: and for addicts out there, this is a way to keep yourself safe. Crystal Holmbach, I thank you so much, and we will talk to you soon. Thank you,
1: Carol. Bye bye.
0: Bye bye. and so, again, a good show about boundaries. We always need them. And for the partner, you can pay attention to that too. I'm Carol Jurgensen Sheep, AKA Carol the Coach. And there'll only be one of you at all times. I want you to fearlessly be yourself. Go to my website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach, and sign up for the summit that starts tomorrow. It's free. We love it. It's with Jake Porter and it has 35 professionals that will help you to heal. Make it a great week and I'll see you next Monday for more sex help with Carol the Coach.
2: Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky?